The rest of us this morning are going to be in Romans chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans 5. If you're new to the Bible, maybe we just gave you a Bible this morning uh, as a gift. You can find a table of contents, and that way you can find Romans and follow along with the rest of us. This morning, well, first I'm going to move this because there will be an accident. Otherwise, as I find myself excited about the things we're talking about, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, as, a, as a follow-up, as a conclusion, as a high point even of our study of God's Word together. But in Romans 5, we're going to be talking about something that is extraordinary about biblical Christianity. And that is that we have a sureness, that we have a security that is unique, that is unique to biblical Christianity. And it's designed to exalt Christ. It comes from Christ and it really should fuel our praise and our worship and our living. We're talking about Christian hope, which is to say Christian certainty. And that's what Romans 5, 1 to 11 is about. And it looks at this certainty or this hope from a, a number of different angles, a number of different dimensions. And all of these are designed to cause us to praise God for doing all of this for us in Christ. Uh, I suggested a couple of weeks ago when we started this that we could look at these from seven different angles. And so what I'd like to do this morning is briefly review the first four, uh, and then we'll look at three of the remaining angles. But again, it's all about hope. It's about the hope that is ours because of what Christ has done, and that is in Romans chapter 3 and 4, and now this is the hope founded upon Christ's work in Romans 5, 1 to 11. The first dimension of hope for, for those who are trusting in Christ, number one, is the hope of peace with God, the hope of peace with God. We see this in Romans 5, 1, where it says, therefore, tying it to the work of Christ in Romans 3 and 4, therefore, having been justified, having been declared righteous by faith, that is, faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the emphasis on sureness, having been justified. We have peace with God. And so it is, it is a present reality. It's not something we're working for. It's not something we're hoping for. It is a hope we have, but it's a hope because of something that has already been done. It points to the greatness of Christ. Interestingly enough, it's even using this military metaphor of, of peace because even as we'll see in Romans 5, uh, apart from Christ's work, we actually are God's enemies. And so now we have peace and, and that should give us hope. Second, the second dimension by way of review uh, of hope is number two, the hope of standing in grace. The hope of standing in grace, that is having sureness or confidence in our position before God. We see this in verse 2, where you can read along with me. It says, through whom, that is through Christ, also having obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. This sure footing, this confidence based upon the merits of Christ that we have before God. And that should give us sure hope. A third dimension that we've already seen by way of review is the hope of the glory of God. Verse 2 goes on to say, And we exalt or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We're looking forward to God revealing Himself. We're looking forward to being with God and sharing with Him in His glory. So we boast about all that Christ has done. Not only that, we now give glory to God, which we didn't do before, which shows that we're transformed, that we're different people now. And when I look at my life and see by the grace of God I'm different, that causes me to, give, uh, to have hope that, that God has done something for me that's going to be lasting. And we looked at that last time as well. Fourthly and finally, by way of review, 
the hope of good coming from bad we saw in verses 3 and 4. The hope of good coming from bad. Look at that text with me if you would. And not only this it says, but we also exalt or we boast in our tribulation or our difficulties. Here's why. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. Romans 15.5 tells us that God is the one who gives the perseverance. All of that to say, as we looked at last time, when we face difficulties as Christians, we don't buckle under them. There's a a sense of perseverance that is, is brought to us by the power of God. He gives the perseverance, and then I can look at my life and say, look, I've persevered through this difficulty and this trial. God is at work. This gives me hope for now and for the future. And what we've been seeing over and over again, and I'll keep emphasizing it today, is it's all tied to Romans 4 and 3, which is tying it to the cross. All of these things come to us that give us hope, but they come to us because of faith in Christ and because of the work of Christ. And now, new territory. A fifth dimension of the hope that we have for those of us who are trusting in Christ, the hope of the love of God and the Holy Spirit. The hope of the love of God and the Holy Spirit. Ready to go? Got your seatbelts on? It's good stuff. Doesn't get any better than the stuff we're about ready to see. This is what hope is made of. He begins his argument, if you will, the Apostle Paul, trying to have us see this logically. He says in verse 5, And hope does not disappoint. And if I could rudely interrupt just for the sake of making the point, I would disagree, wouldn't you? Hope disappoints all of the time. The way we talk about hope, well, I hope that happens, or I hope that doesn't happen, or I hope, 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 hope. Hope disappoints all of the time. But not the kind of hope he's talking about. Because it's not hope in self, it's not hope in circumstances, it's not hope in luck, it's not hope in hope. He's talking about a hope that is so much more than wishful thinking. It's a hope that is grounded in something. It's a sureness that is grounded in something. True Christian hope is not a false hope. It doesn't lack backing. It's not empty. It's not a sinister trick or a word game. Now let's read it the right way. And hope does not disappoint because... See, there's something that that tells us it's anchored in something because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. So there's actually something objective that, that, that tells us and shows us we're not just hoping in hope. We have a hope as Christians that doesn't disappoint. We have a hope that is tied to, to a reality. And in this case, that hope is the hope of the love of God. The love of God has been poured out. Interestingly enough, just using this, this, this vivid imagery of it, it's lavished on us. It, it, it's rich. It's not something stingy. It's not something that God gave begrudgingly. He, he, he poured out His love on us. He, he lavished His love on us. It's something that He gives fully and without reservation if we're trusting in Christ, if we are the justified. We have had the love of God poured out, which is a great, great picture. And then he says it's been poured out within our hearts, which deserves at least a couple of observations. Maybe before we even get to those, I don't know about you, but when I read a verse like verse 5, without any kind of effort, without any kind of thinking, I hear a verse like that and I think, oh, that sounds nice. You know, 
That's the kind of thing that should be read in church. You know, that, that, that would be a good thing to say at a funeral, wouldn't it? Maybe at a wedding, that would be a good time to say something like that. I mean, just, it, has a, it has a nice ring to it, but it doesn't really stir me. I, unless I start thinking about it, unless I start meditating upon, what, what is he getting at here? How, how does this have to do with me and my life? And What is the meaning behind this? And then all of a sudden, my blood pressure goes up in a good way. And then all of a sudden, I begin to perspire in a good way. And now all of a sudden, everything is clicking and who knows what's happening with endorphins and so on and so forth. And you think, this is great stuff. Maybe it should be read at a funeral, but with passion. A wedding, yes, but with passion. This is, this is fantastic. Hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. A couple of observations about the within our hearts. First of all, it's amazing because when the Bible speaks of heart so much of the time, it's talking about, uh, it's talking about you, the very core of your being. The very center of who you are is your heart. It's not talking about that, that, that blood-pumping organ. It's just talking about Pat. The very center of Pat. Who I am as a person. And so for the love of God to be poured out is not for God's love to somehow come in contact with me. Is not for the love of God to somehow, you know, be something we stumbled upon and it impacts us once in a while. That the image is so much more powerful than that. It's been poured out and it's been poured out in the very essence, in the very core of your being, if you are if you are related to Christ through faith. The love of God in your heart? It doesn't get any more personal. This is personal. It's genuine. The other angle is equally profound, downright amazing. The author of Romans is expecting us to remember something. The author is expecting us to remember what was said about our hearts. Hmm. How was Romans describing our hearts before. Let's go to chapter 1. And let's go to chapter 2. And then when we reread chapter 5, we say this is, is absolutely amazing. The love of God poured out in our hearts. This is absolutely amazing because look at Romans 1.21. 121 says, for even though, it's talking about unbelievers, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. They're, they're, they're idolatrous. That's all of us apart from God's grace and apart from justification. But notice what it says at the end of 21. And their foolish hearts, heart was darkened. All right, make a list. Make a list of how our heart is described before. Number one, foolish. Number two, dark. Darkened. Okay, Romans 5 is getting better. <laughs> Let's keep going. How about Romans 1.24? Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. All right? Number three on my list, lustful. Not for good things either. Uh, impure, hearts to impurity. 
Romans 5 is getting better. Well, let's add to that Romans 2 verse 5 to our list of heart before justification so we can see the comparison. So Romans 5 will jump off the page. Romans 2 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. All right, next on the list is stubborn. That's how my heart is described, how your heart is described. Not only that, it's unrepentant. So stubborn, unrepentant, impure, lustful, dishonorable heart, worthy of divine wrath. It's bad. Horrible. And then what do we have? We have justification. We have Christ dying for us. And if we trust in Him and Him alone and His perfect righteousness, God declares us righteous, we're justified. That's the latter part of Romans 3. happens by faith. It's applied by faith. That's Romans 4 as well. And then we get to Romans chapter 5 and we learn about the hope that is ours because we're justified, because we're trusting in Christ. And He's giving us all of this hope. And He says, you know what? Hope doesn't disappoint. You know why? Because the love of God, by the nature of the fact that you're related to Christ, you're justified, the love of God has been poured out and it's been poured out in your heart. You see, your heart used to be against God. It used to be for self and lustful passions and it was dishonorable and it was filthy and it was dark. And God's love has been poured out in your heart, making it all new. If that doesn't make you want to become a charismatic, I don't know what does. I say, yeah! Yeah! This is absolutely amazing. This is fantastic. And you know what? It gives me hope. Because before, I had no business whatsoever having any hope. If you have hope, apart from justification by faith, you're hoping in hope. It's dumb to have hope. You shouldn't have hope. But then you see what's true about your heart. You see that you're hopeless. You see Christ in His riches by God's grace and you trust in Him and Him alone and now you are declared righteous and now you have all the hope in the world because you have the love of God now poured out in your heart. See the contrast? Read your Bibles in context. Read it in flow. Remember things as you're reading and all of a sudden this stuff becomes absolutely amazing and it causes you to want to praise God and it certainly gives you great confidence. It gives you great hope. It gives you great hope in Christ. And you see how amazing Christ is. We have the love of God poured out in our hearts because of Calvary. We have hope because of Calvary. Because we remember Romans 5.1 is therefore it's tying all this great hopeful blessing stuff to Romans 4 and Romans 3. It's absolutely amazing. I do love the fact even if you... Now let's move on. We're never going to get done otherwise. I just thank you for observing my personal worship service. I don't know what I, I have to be a preacher, or I, otherwise I would sit there in your seat and do what I'm doing. And don't you do that, Barry? <laughs> we'll call security. <laughs> you guys should all preach to someone. Okay, you need an outlet. If this is really affecting your heart, you need to find somebody to preach to. I don't care if it's I don't care who, but just for this to affect you. It, i got to let it out. It's amazing. Well, that's not all. We, we have the love of God giving us hope, but we also have the agency by which we receive the love of God. Also, we're still on the same point. 
But it comes to us, look at verse 5 toward the end there, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's more than I can get my mind around. If you can get your mind around that, then you're, you're one smart cookie, I guess. Okay, uh, the, the love of God has been poured out in my heart because of my association with Christ now. That certainly gives me hope. But how did I receive the love of God being poured out in my heart? I received it through the Holy Spirit who is God. And not only does it say that, who was given to us. God has given Himself to us. Not only is love, but He gives Himself. And now all of a sudden, this is absolutely more than I can comprehend. I don't have enough ram going on up here. This is crazy. This is crazy good. I have a bad heart, a dark heart, an against God heart, a lustful heart. But by nature of what Christ has done for me, I now have the love of God Almighty poured out within my heart. Not only that, it comes to me through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. Hope, 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 hope. I have all the confidence in the world. I have all the confidence in the world that I have a right relationship with God. Quite frankly, because I have the love of God poured out within my heart. I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. This is hope-filled times a million. Did you notice the emphasis, too, that we're seeing in Romans over and over again? through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Even the way it is in the original text from a grammatical standpoint, it's a single decisive act. He did it. And the emphasis is on He did it. I didn't do things to earn the Holy Spirit or I don't have to keep working harder to get more of the Holy Spirit inside of me or anything like that. Because quite frankly, if that were the case, I I would have an unsteady hope. I wouldn't really have a hope. I'd have hope in self, which is no hope at all. He gave Himself to us. Period. The hope meter is rising. And the Bible isn't silent about the Holy Spirit. Here, in less than five minutes, let me do a mini-series on the Holy Spirit. Okay? (laughs) I mean... This is just a whole series in and of itself. But you start thinking about the Holy Spirit given to me. God has given Himself to me. What what does the Holy Spirit do? I mean, how about John chapter 3? The Holy Spirit regenerates us, gives us new life when we're spiritually dead to bring about faith, to bring about repentance so that I will believe in the cross, so I will believe in what Christ has done. So John 3, regeneration. Romans 8, 9, He indwells us. Ephesians 4.30, He seals us so we are sure we are secure. Romans 8.16, the Holy Spirit testifies with our human spirit that we are children of God. That's meant to assure us as well and give us sure hope. He intercedes for us, Romans 8.26. Again, that's to give us sureness, to give us hope. He bears fruit within us if we are justified people, Galatians 5. He convicts of sin, John 16.8. That gives me assurance as well. Uh, He illumines us. He turns the lights on upstairs, so to speak, so we can understand spiritual truth because we couldn't before. That's 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. He baptizes us into the body of Christ, the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He places us into the church and makes us a member of His body. He gives us spiritual gifts for serving in the body and the building up of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. And the list could go on, but I'll end with this one that I love so much. He keeps pointing us toward Christ. John chapter 16, verse 14. 
Jesus is leaving. Jesus is going off the scene. He says, I will give you another helper. But he tells us in John chapter 16 that he, the Spirit, will glorify me, the Son. So this is an amazing thing, even in light of Romans. Romans chapter 5, the Spirit of God has been given to us. We have the Spirit of God. And one of the things that the Spirit of God was meant to do and does, if He's truly abiding, is He keeps reminding us of Romans 4 and 3, if you will. He keeps reminding us of the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. The only reason you have me, the Spirit, the only reason you have the fruit, the only reason you have uh, the indwelling, the only reason you have all of these amazing things is because of Calvary. So keep emphasizing Christ. Keep making much of Him. And I'm doing my job, so to speak. He will glorify me. God has given us His Spirit. As justified people, based upon the merits of Christ, we have His Spirit. This is all amazing. We're not even doing it justice. Just takes us everywhere. And all of a sudden, we start seeing all kinds of connections all over the place. Let's move on, though. Hope from the Spirit, hope from the love of God. No doubt you can't separate them, but let's have hope from another dimension of being justified, and that is, number six, the hope of undeserved atonement. The hope of undeserved atonement. You might not use the word atonement very often in everyday speech, but it's a word worth learning. It's a word worth knowing. To, to atone for something is to pay for something. To satisfy a debt. The hope of undeserved atonement. Here's what I wrote in my notes. One of the last things I wrote down. Slow here. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Next I wrote, pastor people. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. This is vital Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. So let's slow down. (laughs) Because these verses are absolutely and completely fundamental to us understanding hope because they are absolutely and fundamentally essential to us understanding the gospel. Really want you to get this. We can speed up on the next one, but we need to settle in a little bit here. My hope ultimately is tied to what Christ has done for me in dying in my place. I didn't deserve it, but He did it, and that gives us hope. That's going to be the logic of these verses, verses 6 to 8. No doubt this is concerning the love of God too, as we shall see. But let's move on in verse 6. Look with me where it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Period. And I'm trying really hard in my preaching, to not be one of those preachers, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it before, that reads the verse but doesn't even add a period or a pause for a period, and then I just start talking and giving you my words. The power is not in my words. The power is in the text. The power is in those words. 
to the point where I want, I would love to have you see it again, hear it again, read it again for a while. Just let it absorb into your mind. And I say, God, use your Holy Spirit to help us understand and meditate and think. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. First, notice, helpless. There's nothing we could do. We needed to be rescued. We're enshackled, okay, by the power of our sin and our selfishness and all of those things. We were helpless, it says. Helpless. And if we're helpless, we are hopeless. So he wants us to see when Christ died, you were helpless. But that's not all. It wasn't just that you needed to be rescued, it wasn't only that I needed to be rescued. It wasn't in any way, shape, or form uh, you or me saying, Help! Over here! Help me over here! I'm helpless! Because he gives another component to the explanation. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were spiritually stranded, yes! But we weren't only spiritually stranded, we were spiritually stranded and we were opposed to God. We were ungodly. We were against Him. We were opposed to Him. Again, Romans isn't going to say in Romans 5, we were His enemies. It wasn't that we were saying, oh God, I love you so much. Would you please help me? Send your son for me. We were not doing that. And if you think we were doing that, you don't understand the gospel. And it's no wonder that you don't have a sure hope. Please read it and reread it and, and let it just say what it says with no commentary from the preacher. But I love what he says in that verse. At the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. Precisely then, I think, is the emphasis. It, it could be that in God's prophetic timetable, this is when it happened, and that's true, but I think the idea here is, at that time, when you needed it to happen, when you most needed it to happen, because you were helpless and you were hopeless and you were ungodly, that is when He had Him die. He didn't have Him die once you came around and were reaching out to God. He didn't have it happen then because in light of Romans 3, it never would happen. You would never come around. I would never come around. And so at the right time, He has Him die for us, the ungodly, the needed time. And then, just in case we're not getting this, you know, just in case you're like me and went to public schools, okay, just in case we're not getting it, just, because, just in case we think we deserved Him to die for us, just in case there's an inkling inside of us that says, well, well, God saw the good in me and that's why He had Jesus come and die. I mean, just in case you're reading books like Blue Like Jazz that says that kind of stuff, just in case within earshot there's a, a Pelagian somewhere listening or an Arminian somewhere listening, just in case, if you don't know what that is, look it up on Wikipedia. 
All of us used to be those by nature and you get converted and you're not those anymore. Just be thankful you're not one, but you might be one. And just in case you are a Pelagian, just, because, just in case you are an Arminian, just in case you're thinking, I deserve for this to happen, just in case we have verses 7 and 8. Now, verse 6 should be enough to smoke them all out, but 7 and 8, just in case. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. He's using this, this, this natural illustration to get us to think logically about what he said. Now, now what, are you, what are you saying again? If you look at verse 7, it could happen that someone would die for a righteous person. I mean, that, that could happen, but it doesn't happen very often. When it does happen, wow, that really shows love. But, but, but generally, that does, the kind of thing doesn't happen. I keep reading. Though perhaps for, for the good men, someone would dare even to die. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes, you know, in the, in the, in the natural realm, you, you read about it in the newspaper, it's on the front page. Some children were, were in great peril, and someone risked their very life to rescue them, and they died in the process, and we make them a hero. And it's a good thing we say, that is great love. And rightfully so. He uses that way of thinking to make a point. Now, I will ask you to return to the spiritual realm and not just the physical realm and remind you, you might want to write in the margin of verse 7, Romans 3.10 says there are no righteous people. And Romans 3.12 says there are no good people. to happen in a natural realm. We, we see the goodness in that. And then verse 8 is so deluxe. Verse 8 says, but God. We would be impressed with that kind of love, but that's not the kind of love the gospel is talking about. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. It's not that kind of love. It's not the kind of love of verse 7. His own love toward us. Keep reading there in verse 8. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the sinners. When we were still glory-grubbing, spiritually dead, opposed to God, enemies, hostiles, insurgents, he had his son die. I'm doing this because it doesn't get any better than that. This is, this is the gospel. This is really ultimately what my hope is founded on. You see, if somehow it was me reaching out to God and somehow heralding Him as if I would herald some sort of taxi cab or something, somehow my hope is is built upon me and my ability to keep reaching out or to keep the relationship going or something. That is not the gospel. That is not what's talked about in Romans chapter 5. That's not what gives hope. Hope is He did all of it while I was busy giving Him the finger. And so then, if that's true, it's all of Christ. He died for me while I was a sinner, while I was a hostile, while I was a spiritual insurgent, while I was a spiritual terrorist, whatever you want to say to get the point. He has His Son die for us. That's the kind of love Christianity is talking about. And that's the kind of love we can't even get our little puny minds around. But that's the kind of love that we say, I have hope. 
My whole life can be falling apart. Everything can be turned upside down. And I have a hope that is as sure as Calvary. See, we're, we're, talk, we're talking about Christianity here, which is in every way, shape, and form different from every other religion because it has this kind of sure hope. There is no religion that says you are fundamentally and at your core bad and there's nothing you can do. God says that's what's the case. So I'm going to have my son do everything for you. That's the way I'm going to love you. This is great. This is absolutely off the charts great. Leon Morris says he loves because of who he is, not because of what we are. There's nothing in sinners to call forth the love of God. He's right, because that's what Romans 5.8 in context says. Uh, you know, and I, I, I just hope and pray about, not in a biblical hope sense, more in the American sense, that we would get this. If we got this, if we really owned this, which is owning the gospel... God would get the glory that He deserves because He alone saves. And we would be humble because we don't save ourselves. We don't cooperate with God in any way, shape, or form. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. God would be glorified the way He's not currently glorified. We would be humbled the way we're not currently humbled. And how about this? We would have hope. We would have hope that would be off the charts hope. We would have certainty that would be off the charts certainty. Because it doesn't rest upon us. A dead giveaway if you don't have sure hope and sure certainty is in one way or another, you don't understand the gospel. And I'm not saying that as an insult. I'm saying go back to the gospel. Go back to the cross. What's so ironic to me, I don't know if you've thought about this much, but Romans 5.8 is like on the top ten list of verses we memorize as new Christians. I would dare guess that everyone in this room, with the exception of maybe 10%, know Romans 5.8. We know Romans 5.8, but you know what's ironic about that is? We don't know Romans 5.8. The percentages would be different if we talk about now who really knows Romans 5.8. Just to take it at face value. There's no hidden meaning. But to really stop and think about what is Romans 5.8 saying? It's saying the gospel. And so my hope is in Christ. My hope is not in self. My hope is not in a partnership with God. My hope is in Christ Jesus dying for me when I was against Him. My hope is in Christ alone. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said 150 or so years ago, do not look at your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. Don't look at yourself. Look to Christ. Don't even look at all the blessings, for that matter, in Romans 5, if you haven't first been to the, to the fountain to drink of Romans 3 and Romans 4. Here's what I wrote down, just so I could have it in my own mind, for my own soul, my own heart. If God did that for me when I was against Him and did nothing whatsoever to attract His love, 
then it is outlandish for me to think that something or someone can undo the hope that I now have. It's impossible. You can't take it from me. I can't take it from myself because I didn't get it from myself. I hope you're thinking about these things. what worship is made of. It's certainly what hope is made of. Let's move on to number seven. Finally, and we won't do this justice. Maybe we'll have to come up and pick, back, pick up some of these pieces again. But number seven, another dimension to this great hope we have if we are justified. Number seven, the hope of a secure future. The hope of a secure future. Here's what happens. The, the camera, the movie camera, if you will, takes a slight shift at this point. Okay? It's been focused on the here and now. The reality that you are no longer the enemy of God. The reality that you ha- have uh, this peace with God. It's, it's been focusing on the here and now that we have hope right here, right now. And the angle goes like this. And it turns to the future. And what he does masterfully is argue this way. If we have this kind of hope now, then having hope for the future is easy. Okay? That's what he's going to show us. Look at verse 9 and you'll see. It's wonderful. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Did you see what he did? It's easy to see. First focus on the word now, if you have the same translation I'm using. Having now been justified, he's talking about the here and now, the present reality. But then he moves on to say, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If this is real now, then we know we have hope in the future. We have security in the future. We can face stepping into eternity after we breathe our last breath because of the reality that we now possess. And you will step into eternity and you will breathe your last breath. And we're all, you know, an hour closer than when we got here. Tick tock, tick tock. I can face that with sureness, with security because of what is real right now because of what Christ did on on my behalf. And to make sure that we understand this and to to further develop this reality that we don't face the coming wrath that he spoke of, verse 10 reiterates it. And it gets into into the logic of things. It's, It's pretty amazing. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Just encourage you to relook at it and, and say, okay, logically, what is this saying? The first part talks about enemies reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That's what's happened. That's a present reality. That's done. Much more, having been reconciled, what's already been done, we shall be saved by His life. See what He did? It's great. And He argues if you will, from from the greater to the lesser. Think about it. Where he uses the word enemies. 
While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Just so you get this in your mind. While we were enemies, this ties back into Romans 5, 8, we're reconciled to God. While we're against Him, while we're hostile, He has His Son die for us and reconcile us to Himself. Which is just absolutely astounding. That's the hardest thing anyone could ever do. We're against Him. And He gives us the great gift of life in His Son. That is absolutely amazing. That's true, which has been what Romans has been all about so far. Over here, the future, God accepting you someday when you breathe your last breath, there's no problem. Now you belong to Him anyway. Through, through the nature of what His Son has done, by trusting in Him, you've been justified. You've been made a child of God. Now you're in the family. You're not hostile anymore. You're part of the family. And so it would be crazy for us to think that we had a, had a sketchy future. This is, this is fantastic. But you see, the answer for a hope filled future, a sure future, is the gospel. Okay? There's not something secret that we need to get to. Okay? You're thinking and contemplating the future and breathing your last breath. What do you need? I need some special Bible verse passage thing. Maybe what I really need, because the Bible just dealt with the Gospels, I need some other book to get me ready for heaven and facing God because I'm a little unsure about what's going to happen. No, you need the gospel. Hope for the future, sureness for the future, he ties to the gospel of knowing you are an enemy of God and you're reconciled to God. That's gospel basics. Based upon that, surely God will do the relatively easy thing and he'll accept you. So when you comfort me and you come to see me with my cancer-filled body, the greatest thing you can talk to me about is the gospel. When you are in that position, the greatest thing you can meditate on is the cross. When you go to minister and serve someone else in that position, the greatest thing you can talk to them about is the cross. And you say, I thought the cross was for unbelievers. You're mistaken. Remember, it is for unbelievers, but it's not only for unbelievers. Remember, Romans is a letter that was written to a Christian church. We got the gospels for everybody. We got to keep going back to the gospel. Well, you know, we we have to do that. The reason I face the future with certainty is because of what Christ has already done for me in the past. This is a beautiful thing. I don't use that word very often. I try to be as masculine and manly as I can. But you know what? Some things you need to say. This is a beautiful thing. I say that about my wife and not many other things. This is a beautiful thing. This is fantastic. Christ is fantastic. Christ is amazing. It always comes back to Christ. Our sureness, our hope, our certainty in all things. It's tied to Him. And if you think we need something more than Him when we've moved beyond Him, you, you, didn't, you, you didn't really get Him to begin with. It's the key to our growth. 
It's the key to our sanctification, our spiritual growth. It's the, the key to everything he ends up being. He gives a final verse then. I don't want it to end. He gives a final verse and then we'll have our a high point in celebrating the Lord's Supper together for a conclusion. But I think he, he becomes more general in verse 11. He closes out the paragraph, if you will, and he says, and not only this. How many times is he going to say that? You know, just like, it's better. Let me, get, let me tell you something else that's even better. But just wrapping it all together, not only this, but we also exalt, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And in light of verse 10, that, that's the present reality, you know? That the key to the future is the present reality that we have the reconciliation. We're not seeking to be reconciled. We're not hoping to be reconciled. We possess the reconciliation. And if we possess the reconciliation, we have hope for now and we have hope for the future. We have hope. I'll end with this and then we'll prepare for communion. The conclusion that one man drew in light of this is a good and profound conclusion. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish nonconformist persecuted pastor, gave this helpful conclusion and it's going to be my conclusion. I rejoice, he wrote, in the hope of that glory to be revealed. For it is not uncertain glory that we look for. Our hope is not hung upon such an untwisted thread as I hope so or it is likely. But the cable, he says, if I can insert, it's not hanging on the piece of twine. But the cable, the strong toe of our fastened anchor is the oath and promise of Him who is eternal truth. And our anchor that gives us hope that is on the cable that gives us hope is none other than the cross that gives us hope. Pray with me. Father, thank You for the cable, for the anchor, who is Christ. Christ Jesus the Lord. And we boast in Him. We boast in Him. And we want to exalt Him, not ourselves. We want to make much of Him. We're so thankful for Your Holy Spirit that You've given to us. We're thankful for Your love that You've poured out within our hearts. We're thankful for that Your great and undeserved atonement through Your Son. We're thankful for these great and sure promises of the future. You are absolutely amazing and we are very thankful. Lord, thank You now for this opportunity we have to obey You, the risen Christ, the risen Lord, that You gave us yet another way to continue to point to what You've done for us that gives us hope. That we can take simple bread and simple wine and we can eat and we can drink so that we are reminded in a unique and tangible way of the sure hope that is ours based upon what You've done for us even while we were sinners. May this be a rich time of worship as we obey you in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.